and ride with me in my foul life. What's up, podcast world? Welcome to the Foul Life Podcast. Uh, Joel Clayfish here from the Midwest, from Wisconsin, and have we got a fascinating podcast today. We have in the hot seat, not, not really the hot seat, but uh, in the warm seat, uh, Wisconsin DNR warden for more than 30 years and spent several of those years as the chief warden. And man, we are going to get into it today. We're gonna to ask him some tough questions. Todd Schaller, uh, kind enough to join us today. Todd, uh, really appreciate you being here. Hey, thanks for the opportunity and glad to be part of it. Yeah, Todd, we've known each other for a while, haven't we? Yes, we have. Yeah, fortunately, uh, Todd and I never uh, had the uh, privilege of running into each other in the field, <laughs> but uh, Todd has fielded many questions and I'm going to tell you the fascinating part, one of the great parts about Todd is that he is actually an extremely avid waterfowl hunter. And, and we'll start off with some of the softer topics, Todd. I think, um, I think sometimes there's a misperception that, you know, wardens as top law enforcement are, you know, law enforcement guys through and through. But most, would, is it fair to say most guys who are in law enforcement in the outdoor conservation industry are also outdoor users? Absolutely. I think anybody who gets into that career as, or that path as a career has some tie, connection, passion for the natural resources, whether it's hunting, fishing, hiking, camping, whatever it is. But I think the, the men and women who, who wear that badge in conservation law enforcement are there because of their interest and passion for the natural resources. Did you start out as uh, a hunter, a fisherman, or did you go into law enforcement first? No, I was uh, fortunate. I, my, my father and my family raised me as a, a hunter and angler and an outdoors person. And uh, so that passion started with me when I was a little kid. I mean, I remember tagging along with my dad, uh, small game hunting probably was the first thing we did. And, and then, uh, kind of progressing on through the hunting world, but I've been a hunter my entire life and uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Well, what takes a person? I mean, what? where do you make that turn to say, I enjoy the outdoors, I'm part of the outdoors, I love utilizing the outdoors, to be somebody who has to enforce laws in the outdoors and, and very often the people you're coming in contact with or the people you have to write a ticket to, the people you have to, in some cases, arrest, is hunters and fishermen. How do you make that turn? How do you make that decision? It, I don't know. I think it, for me, it was really, it was combining a passion for the outdoors and appreciation for the outdoors with, you know, a career in the outdoors. And for me, it, it the, my path, my college, and I, I got hired as a Wisconsin conservation warden, it, it just kind of fell together. Um, I remember uh, the first time I met a, a warden, as a, as a young man, we, we observed a violation and we called the, the local warden and they came out and took care of it. And so that was my first interaction, very positive. You know, we needed help and we needed something fixed and they were able to fix it. Um, and then from there, it just grew, kept reading about it and hearing about it and, and, and just pursued it as a, a career option. Yeah, that, that was a positive interaction. A lot of time guys in the field, you know, <clears throat> waterfowl hunters in particular. Waterfowl hunting in particular has got so many rules, 
So many laws. You can study them. You can read the new rules every year. You can say, okay, now this bag limit has changed. You got a bag limit of six ducks in Wisconsin, but four can be mallards. Now this year, two can be hens instead of just one being a hen. But then you can get two on top of it of a different species. Then add to that, you can get so many coots on top of that. Or if, if, a, if a snow goose flies in, you can, you can have that in your bag as well. It's such a confusing sport. And a lot of times, a lot of the guys who are, you know, living the fowl life, grinding it out every day, they're, I mean, they're kind of scared to death to go into a field because they're trying to do the best they can, but they're afraid a warden's going to walk onto the field who has the idea that he's not leaving the field without giving a ticket. How do you balance that? Well, I think, and you're absolutely right. Waterfall hunting is by far the most complicated hunting that I'm aware of, at least in Wisconsin and, and probably in most states. And uh, so that, that does, as a hunter, even now, I mean, that, that does kind of raise the bar of what are, you, what are you trying to do and make sure you understand what you're getting into. I think as a hunter, I, I think hopefully across the country, we don't have wardens with the, the viewpoint that I can't leave the field until I get a ticket. Probably are a few, uh, but I think most of them are out there recognizing that the majority of the people who enjoy the outdoors and hunting and fishing and waterfall hunting are, do it because of their passion and they they do it trying to follow the rules as best they can and occasionally they're going to make a mistake when i was working i classified folks as the, those who go out and make a mistake unknowingly and you try to handle them with with kid gloves and try to really take that as an, a learning and teaching opportunity and then you go out with people who are presented with an opportunity and based on that opportunity maybe make the wrong decision and, and decide to take an extra duck or whatever you know now now you maybe need to step it up a little bit and then there's the person and this to me is really the, the goal of law enforcement is the person who leaves the house with full intent of breaking the law and not caring and not caring about the resource and the damage that they may do and uh so as a warden, you, you get out in the field and you, you're trying to balance all of that. And I, I've told people throughout my career, if I could read people's mind, this would be an easy job. And because uh, you want to give the, the honest person a break who made a mistake. Um, and you got to try to filter that out and determine that in that very short window of time that you're, you're talking to them and contacting them. Yeah. And, you know, I would say the vast majority of people out there, waterfowlers, are out there and they have conservation in mind and they're trying to do the right thing. Agreed. And it's that one or two, you know, in a certain area, a county, uh, parts of the state that are going out there to have blatant disregard for the law, but they kind of give a bad name to everyone else. And I think it's not unfair to say sometimes that happens in law enforcement too. If you've got an overzealous uh, warden, um, who is not going to cut a break from time to time or not going to understand somebody's misunderstanding, like you said. I think they kind of give a bad name uh, to other wardens. And what happens is then there becomes this tension between hunter and warden, whether the hunter's a good hunter or a bad hunter. Do you agree with that? I, I do. I, I think you're right. I think there are, and, and I, I definitely agree with the, the vast majority of hunters are wanting to do it right and really try to do it right. And that there's that, that very small percentage you know, is the, the, the puts a bad light on all hunters. 
Um, and I agree, I think there's wardens, and I probably was one of them very early on in my career. You know, you're, you're brand new to it, and you think the game is about trying to catch people. And hopefully you, you learn very quick that that's really not the game. Your game is to work with the people, work with the community, and in doing that, trying to protect the resource. And uh, it takes, to your point, it takes maybe some folks to kind of grow into that phase, or, you know, we try to teach it early on, but everybody kind of processes it and grows a little differently. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say that, you know, people are able to change kind of their outlook. I mean, it's it's like the new hunter, but that that brings to mind, you know, an issue we have not only in Wisconsin, but across the United States, and that is new hunters. Uh, we are in an era right now where kids are, not even kids, kids, adults, teens, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, they're living their life in two dimensions on their phones and they're not getting out and experiencing the outdoors. And how do we get them to understand the potential for the drive to get outdoors and bring something from the field to the table if they're addicted to their phone, number one, and number two, they say, the rules are too hard. There's too many rules. Yeah, that's a tough one. And I, I, I agree. I think, I think some, I agree that the rules can be a barrier to a, to a new hunter. I mean, you, you look at a pamphlet and a, a waterfall pamphlet's 30 some pages, you know, of all of that. And you're like, well, why would I want to do that? You know, I don't want to study that if I can, you know, find, you know, happiness on my phone or my device or whatever that is. So I think that's something that all agencies, natural resource agencies really need to take a look at. And what can you do to make it easier, simpler while protecting the resource? And I think there's ways to do that. Um, I'm all about trying to, to bring new people on board and, and sometimes all it is is just giving them that exposure and to your point it's not only the exposure to the hunting feel and the vibe and what that experience is like but it's the exposure to what do you do with that game once you get home. I think a lot of the, the mentored hunting and the learn to hunt programs that are out there really focus on the hunting part of it and they're lacking on okay, now you've harvested a, a goose, what do you do with that goose? And taking it home, showing them how to field dress it, showing them how to prepare it, and then showing how, how delicious that goose can be, um, you know, once it comes from the, out of the kitchen. And I think that's one thing we're missing in trying to bring new hunters on board is, is that the full experience, not just the in the blind experience. Yeah, and of course you're talking, you're talking about the provider life, the provider lifestyle, being a provider uh, of what you kill and what you harvest. And there's also a progression. Um, as a new hunter, you just, you wanna get those first harvests. You wanna get that first kill. Um, that kill is, is the sa satisfaction, the dopamine rush, yep. uh, if you will. Now, for, for someone like me, uh, obviously, I have uh, no trouble bellying up to the to the dinner table. Very clearly, I mean, yes, I am, you know, one of the the, the strongest men in Wisconsin, this side of wherever Chad Belding is at the time. But uh, I love to eat. I love to eat what I kill, and that to me is just as exciting and just as satisfying. And I'd say to most people, it may not be. They haven't figured that part of it out yet. No, I, I think you're right. And go back to when, when I was a young child and hunted. I mean, everything we brought home, we ate. And squirrels, and my mom was an excellent cook, and it was all good stuff. And so I was taught that from the, the onset, you know, that that's, that's part of hunting is, 
utilizing the game that you, you harvest. And uh, I think as a hunting community and hunters, we, try, we need to try to emphasize that with our, our new friends who are coming into hunting and uh, encourage them to, to recognize the importance of, of using, using their game. I think things have changed when it comes to the dinner table too. I mean, years ago, if you took home a goose breast and slapped it on the, uh, on the griller in the frying pan and served it with, with onions, you know, whoever in the family doesn't like to eat onions is not gonna enjoy that goose breast cooked that way, but there's so many innovations. I mean, with the Traeger grills out there, the pellet smoker, uh, you know, you can smoke something on the Traeger for hours on end with the sous vides that people are using where you're giving it a French water bath, you know, with, uh, with the, the new ways to tenderize with the provider uh, spices and rubs, which can be used in marinades. You've got so many different ways to change the, the, the taste and texture of wild game. I mean, I have people coming eating wild game now uh, who don't even know it's wild game. And you have to convince them they're eating a goose or they're eating a duck or they're eating a, you know, the merganser. Oh yeah, what's the merganser worth? Nothing, everybody talks about how nasty they taste until they taste it in a Cabernet Sauvignon reduction, you know, with some chives and some, some foul spice from the, the provider spices on it. Now you're dealing with something completely different, you know. I hunt with a lot of these uh, 25-year-old guys and, and they call me Papa Fish because I'm running around like a chicken at 50 years old with them out there. But they all hardly, none of them ever say, no, I don't want to come to your house after to eat. So I think the dynamic of how we eat things has changed as well. Dramatically. And, uh, you know, just like the technology of the equipment that we use out in the field. You know, look at, look at guns, you know, look at a Benelli gun now compared to years ago and, and the improvements that have been made and the gear that we wear. So thankfully, the food side of it, the provider side of it, has, has grown along with it and provided opportunities that, you know, we can enjoy game that people used to maybe put their nose up to. And uh, people like you who are, who are really good at it and can get people to taste it and understand that, hey, this is really good food. It's, it's healthy, it's organic, there's, there's, you know, you can't talk about organic food any better than wild game, you know, as far as eating it. Um, and there's a big culture out there that wants to talk about sustainable food, water, hunting, waterfall hunting specifically, that's a part of, of eating healthy, eating clean. Yeah, and I think that that's a lot of times where the right meets the left. We're talking about an organic food source, a sustainable food source that's organic. And really, um, how can you debate whether that is a good way to have meat come to the table uh, if you're hunting it? Whatever animal you're hunting is living a free, open life its entire life. Uh, until it ends up on a dinner plate. And there is no more ethical way to put meat on the table than to go hunt it yourself. Nope, you're right. And actually we're seeing some of that in the growth of hunting. In areas that you're starting to see a little bit of uptick in the number of licenses sold, a lot of those people coming on board are because of the food side of it. And they under, then, then they, they, they want the food, they get into the hunting, then they start to understand the conservation side of it. And that really, in my mind, makes it an excellent future hunter, um, you know, as far as a, a sportsman, a conservationist, and a, and a user of the resource. So what's the answer? What is the answer to, what is the next thing we attack, the next thing we look toward to get future hunters 
interested in hunting. You've got regulations that are so heavy and burdensome. Now, I don't know if you know, I was in the legislature and I wrote the, the amendment that eliminated the daily punch tag for goose and the daily call in for goose. So that simplified goose hunting substantially. But I gotta be honest, there were a lot of wardens who were not happy with me at that time. They were not happy that the punch card in your wallet uh, and the call-in were eliminated. They weren't happy about it, but I think it was one of the biggest advancements to bringing people into the sport. I, What's your take from a law enforcement standpoint? That particular one, I, I'm in full agreement with you. I think that was a, a mechanism that we had in Wisconsin that really wasn't being utilized anywhere else. And you know, to, to raise the question of why do we do it here when they're not doing it in other states? Our goose population is growing, um, you know, to the point where it's causing problems. You know, in, in urban areas and in, in the farmlands. Um, so I think to your point about how do you how do you tear down the rules? A lot of it needs to be through conversation, and I think it's important that we look at it from a from a hunter's perspective, the biologist's perspective, and the law enforcement perspective. And it's really about having the right people in the room, having the right conversation about what you're trying to accomplish. At the end of it, you want to you want to protect the resource. That's, that's the focus, that should be the focus. And how do you best do it? And then to your point of right rule complication or re regulations, how do you, that's why I think it's important to have a hunter into the, in the conversation is, so what does this mean? Here's the rule, how do I enforce it? But what does it mean to the hunter? You know, what is a hunter gonna do with that? I think that's a big piece of it. Well, you were kind of at the apex, whether you wanted to be or not. You were the, the chief law enforcement officer for natural resources in the state, uh, you know, which is based in Madison, the bureaucracy of Madison, but you dealt with the lawmakers and the legislators, and there are not a ton of them who are avid hunters or fishermen. I mean, there's more fishermen, but um, so you had to often give advice and were sought after for advice. How tough was that for you as the chief warden when you've got folks under you, wardens in the field, who are saying, don't let them change that Chief Warden Schaller, don't let them change that because then I have one less way to give a ticket or one less thing to check in a field. How did you balance that? Well, I think for, for one, the, the goal isn't how many tickets can we give? I go back to the goal is always, what is the best rule to protect the resource? Yeah, but I mean, there were times wardens would come to, into a field, take a picture of the punch card and compare it to the call-in. And then a ticket would come in the mail. I mean, I know of specific instances that happened. I'm not saying you did it. But what that tells me is the motive on the hunter's part is to record it one way or the other. They're not trying to poach the goose or they wouldn't have it punched or they wouldn't have it called in. But they're, you know, they're getting tickets for one or the other of those things. And I think, I, I mean, I think we're past it now, but I think at the time that, that would send a really tough signal to the hunter that, hey, you're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. No, I, I think, and you were right. Change is hard for everybody. So as a law enforcement officer, when a rule changes, and you know, that's, that's through a different process, oftentimes they're not part of it, they're, they, they struggle with that change until they want to understand it, why the change occurred, um, and then are able to kind of work their way through the change process. And I, I go back to, it's all about conversations and how do, you, how do you resolve the issue or the challenge 
and having the right people in the room to try to do that. And you're right. There are times I would go back to the office and I'd say, hey, they're working on this particular issue or this particular legislation. And you'd have folks who were adamantly opposed to it. But you sit down, you talk through it, you understand why it's, why it's occurring. And I think with time in process, people, they understand it. And they, then that's the buy-in that we need on the law enforcement side of it. Yeah, and we have one of the best, uh, we have one of the most progressive mentored hunting laws in the state. Again, when we initially started the mentored hunting in Wisconsin, uh, there was an age limit, only one firearm was allowed at the time, and there was extreme resistance. Do you remember the resistance? Uh, I do. And, uh, and then when the numbers came out, there were fewer injuries among young mentored hunters. Then we fought to have no age limit on a mentored hunter. And man, people came out of the woodwork saying how dangerous this would be, what a horrible thing it would be. And I think it is nearly single-handedly the thing saving hunting in Wisconsin is the mentored hunt right now. Um, there is no age limit on it. A parent can decide when they want to bring their child out. And the reality of it at the end of the day is that more people are injured who have their hunter's safety, who are sitting out in the field by themselves than, than mentored hunters are. Yep. And you're right. And I, we've, you've talked about it on other podcasts. I've heard it, Joel, where you talk about, you know, the science and the facts versus the emotion around the issue. And I think the mentored hunting was a good example of that. That there was a lot of emotion that came from those in opposition of it. But when you looked at the numbers, you looked at what was occurring in other states, it wasn't it was the facts say it was just fine. It was a safe experience. And we've we've now lived that in the state of Wisconsin. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm not going to continue. I, I'm not going to keep hammering you about uh, about the difficulty uh, and the taffy pulling that goes on with wardens and hunters afield because there there is a natural taffy pulling, and I think that that part of that is potentially um, you know intentional by the founding fathers and by the folks who make the laws because have knowing that you can be checked in the field. Uh, knowing that there are rules that you got to follow, do tell the hunter and make the good hunter uh, knowledgeable that he has to kind of follow the rules and he should do what he can. It's kind of like, um, like they say, you know, a lock keeps honest people honest, and that's what uh, that's very often the role of of the warden out there. And I, I like to feel like it, like that is. So, talk to me about some of the great experiences you had as a warden. What are some things that stand out to you as good accomplishments or good areas where you worked with the legislature to improve the climate of hunting or to improve conservation or to move hunting forward? I think one, and, and Joel, you were part of it, is the, the Sportsman's Caucus. And that was a way to educate the legislatures and, and members of that about what hunting and firearms was about. And uh, I wasn't part of it, but I got to participate in it. I went to several of the events and, uh, and got to, to see people and interact with the folks at that level. I think that was something I enjoyed as a, as a chief warden, is kind of getting to know legislators at that personal level a little bit anyway. And uh, that way they understood that if they had a question, they could come to me. And if I had a question, I could maybe reach out to them. So from a field warden's perspective, I know my Things that I looked at and enjoyed the most was really working with the public on different issues and topics. And, uh, you know, them respecting me as a warden and respecting me as a person and being able to pick up the phone and call 
and say, hey, my neighbor's doing this or my neighbor's doing that or whatever the circumstance may be. And having trust and confidence in who I was and what I would do um, to resolve that issue and, and treat people fairly and honestly. And I think most wardens, if they look back at their career, that, that is a big part of you know, their, their legacy is being, being respected, being viewed as fair, being reviewed as honest by the, the communities that they served. Yeah, it, wardens are in this niche that it, it's one of the toughest niches in law enforcement. It really is because you want to have respect. You respect the blue. You want to have respect for law enforcement. And, and you know, as a hunter and as a member of society, I have the utmost and highest level of respect for them. People don't often realize the warden has some of the most authority of any law enforcement officer in the state but they also face on a regular basis, on a basis much higher than most other law enforcement, the highest risk to themselves and the highest, uh, the highest personal family risk and highest danger, not only in areas where there are you know, bears and, and wildlife present that, that presents a threat. A warden approaches somebody and they're pretty darn sure that person's got a firearm, that person's got a gun. And that is a heightened level to begin with. I think some people forget that. The warden, the warden's walking into a boiling cauldron at any given moment. Yeah, and it's, it's statistics show it that you know, conservation law enforcement is one of the most dangerous law enforcement jobs there is. And it's to your point, everybody we, met, we meet and introduce ourselves to has got a weapon. Fishermen got knives. Hunters got guns, bows and arrows, and those type of things. So um, that that does play into it a little bit, you know. As you you contact somebody and approach somebody, obviously our own safety, personal safety, is is a key piece of it. And you try to kind of break that down as quick as you can and, and get a sense of who you're dealing with and kind of their demeanor. And 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 once you do that, then you can move into the you know checking the licenses and the, the game that they may have and those type of things. Did you ever get into any hairy situations? Yep, I've, I've, I have. Um, I've had situations where, thankfully, I, I didn't draw my gun. I had an individual threaten me with a, um, I found out later it was a, uh, a drywall hammer out ice fishing. They had too many tip-ups, and I was simply, you know, talking to them about too many tip-ups, and they were on some medication that they reacted, and he threatened me with a, a drywall hammer, and we were able to, I was able, thankfully, to, to talk him down and talk him out of it, and he walked off. I didn't need to deal with him at that point in time. I was by myself in the middle of a lake um, at night, and uh, so I let him go. And uh, I knew who he was. I had his identification. We went and talked to him later and you know, addressed what we needed to address. But uh, yeah, I've had situations like that. Most of it somehow ties back to uh, drugs and alcohol. You know, in a lot of the situations, it's somebody who's either using or has too much of one of those. Did you hug the family a little harder that night? You absolutely do. You, you kind of reflect on your life and your family and, and those type of things. And yeah. Does that kind of influence uh, make you a better law enforcement officer in the future? Or does that uh, put a mark uh, on your shoulder going forward? That's got to be tough when you're out in the field and uh, you're... You know, metaphorically, your life fly, flashes before your eyes because when you're out there, you're tasked with making split-second decisions 
um, that are made sometimes by, by people who are not necessarily thinking about the consequence of their actions? Hard to say. I think everybody probably processes or handles it differently. You know, you, you certainly reflect back on it. And, uh, you know, in that particular case, I mean, I, we were able to resolve it. Um, did I change what I did and how I handled things? I probably was presented myself tactically in a, in a better situation or circumstance post that, you know, as far as how I distance I kept from people and those type of things. Um, so I think it, it does. I don't, I don't believe it would jade or, or chip on the shoulder of an individual because I think you recognize that that's one individual out of the thousands that you interact with who, you know, poses that threat or danger to you. And, and again, I go back to the vast majority of people you work with and deal with are good people. You know, they're, they're out there enjoying their, their passion and their hobbies and, and uh, trying to do it right. And I think that's, that's what I always re reflect back at. What's it like for you when you're out there and, and you're coming up on a boat just to, to check it as they're coming in and you see that first time hunter on the boat and they got a bag limit of, of ducks and, and you, they got that smile on their face or they just shot their first buck and it's a little fork horn and, and they're beaming top to bottom. They've made uh, mom or dad proud, you know, they were out hunting with. Uh, I'm sure you had plenty of those kind of experiences. Absolutely, and it, it's it's a blast. I mean, you can you can normally, to your point, you can normally see the smile and the energy and the excitement as you're approaching them or from a distance, and uh, and then to hear them, you know, talk about their story or what happened to you know with their with their deer, and then to me that's really an opportunity to have an influence on them, a positive influence on them, and you know praise them for their efforts and recognize their. Their, you know their success as a, as a new hunter um, and take advantage of that to to um, leave a, a lasting and positive impression with that individual a lot of people in my career would say well you know why do you want to be a warden then you can't hunt and fish as much as you want and or as, you know if you weren't and that's probably true but one thing I've always said is I might not be hunting or fishing but every single day I was talking to and interacting with the people that have the same passion and love that I do. And I, I got a lot of enjoyment out of that. Well, that. And that's much higher percentage than the interactions where you're given a ticket or where, you, where you're upset with somebody for potentially breaking the law, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the vast majority of our contacts, and that's, that I separate that from conservation law enforcement to, to traditional law enforcement, the city cop or the state trooper. You know, most of their contacts there's, there's a violation already occurred or there's a complaint. A lot of the field warden, conservation warden, natural resource um, officers contacts are very positive. You're checking a license, they got their license, they, you know, guns are good, they got a nice bag of ducks or geese and everything is in compliant and everybody smiles and you, you know, you do your job, you have an interaction, you make sure they're following the rules, but it's a very positive interaction, and that's the vast majority of our contacts. You ever get some pretty good uh, tips on where to hunt or where to drop a boat in when you're out there? You know, every day when you're working a county, you absolutely, you, you tend to know where the fish are or the birds are or, the, you know, things are moving, and, uh, you know, that's, that's part of it. Most of the time, you can't take advantage of it, but, you know, you get to see it. 
Yeah, nobody's going to become a billionaire being a warden. That's for sure. So you got to have a, a fringe benefit here or there at least, <laughs> yes. right? No, that's true. That's true. And uh, I don't want to be remiss because uh, former Chief Warden uh, Todd Schaller is quite a waterfowl hunter. In fact, he's on my rear end quite a bit about getting out to hunt with him. And I have yet to do it uh, because he chases those big water birds. Uh, that is quite a passion of yours, isn't it? It, it is. It is. Waterfowling in general is a passion. And kind of the subset of that for me is, is big water hunting. Um, divers or sea ducks and... Uh, I love it, and uh, it's. I think it's because of everything that goes along with it. You know, it's not just the hunting; it's the the decoys and setting the decoys and the boats and the gear. And I, you know, I, I do it 365 days out of the year. I'm not hunting, but I'm getting things ready, thinking about the next outing, those type of things. So, how did you get started in that? What what drew you to the big water hunting? And and talk to me about what a typical setup is, because you're very successful at it. And a lot of people try it and are not successful, and it's not for them. The layout boat, the waves, the wind, the water temperature, the hypothermia possibility. I mean, this is this is this is real, uh, you know, foul life stuff. I mean, you, what got you into it? How did you start, and and where did you go from there? Well, what got me into it is like most no new hunters. I you know, as a waterfowl hunter, somebody invited me out for an outing to go open water hunting in a layout boat, and I, I did it once. And I, I was hook, line, and sinker. It was just such a neat experience for me um, that I, I almost immediately went home and started researching, all right, how do I get a boat? And how do I get a layout boat? And how do I start you know, getting the decoys and those type of things? And then I, I wasn't able to do that because of cost and things like that. But I started to go out with a few more people and, and see it a few more times. And, and learn from others about what techniques work and what techniques don't work. And uh, so I just kind of progressed into it and, uh, and grew into it. And it's, it's, it's about all water, it's like all waterfall hunting. All you do is you, you, know, you scout your areas, you try to get to the place where there's birds or birds working, and you put your best show out in front of them and, and you hope they come into it. Um, and some days they do and some days they don't. Where do you hunt the most? Um, you hunt Lake Michigan. I hunt Lake Michigan, but primarily Green Bay. And what does that take? What time are you up in the morning, getting the decoys ready? What run lines are you running? What are you hoping to, to sure. know, see? We, I, personally, I tend not to go out pre-dawn. Um, I just, it's, there's, a, there's a risk with it, um, trying to set out gear and things with headlamps and a boat. And I, I did it for a few years. and. It was just too complicated, too, I didn't feel safe in doing it. So I, I, I get up early, get all my gear ready, but I really don't go onto the water until sunrise. And uh, it allows me to set my gear where I can see it. It also gives me the opportunity, and a, a friend of mine told me this, you get to see where the birds are. You go out at night or in the morning before, before, before sunup, you're just going by what you had maybe scouted the night before. And maybe those birds have changed because of the wind or the weather or um, like that. So I go out in the first light, um, I can see where the birds are working and maybe my intent was to come out of the landing and go north. And I go north a little bit and I'm like, hey, those birds aren't there anymore. And now it's a matter of trying to, to locate where those birds are um, and where their flight pattern may be. And then once I determine that, go out and, and set it up. And uh, labor intensive. Um, 
requires a minimum of two. I tend to go with three just to kind of make it a little bit easier on everybody. It allows some rotation into the layout boat, but first step is to get the layout boat into the water and anchored um, based on the wind. So you're, you know, you've you got the wind to your back and, and get that set up. Then it's a matter of setting out decoys and you run anywhere from, I don't know, four, five, six dozen. Depends upon the day, depends upon the weather, depends upon you know, what you think is gonna work for that particular day. Um, I run a lot of long lines, so it's, you know, a, a 150 foot of cord with, you know, a dozen, 15 decoys attached to that, um, anchored on both ends, and uh, no different than field hunting. You know, you, you lay out your decoys in a way that you, there's some attractant, um, there's a hole, you know, an open hole that you want the birds to, to work into, hopefully, you know, to, to put their feet down and want to land in that, and you you put that in the best position to the layout boat. If you're a right-handed shooter, it's different than if you're a left-handed shooter. So, it's uh, it's a lot like layout. It's a lot like field hunting, except you're doing it in a boat and floating around. Except, I mean, field hunting's more a little bit more predictable sometimes uh, with feeding patterns in the morning and the afternoon. And I, I mean, with field hunting, that's why you're out there before the sunrise because you can real feel on on the wind conditions. You know what you said about getting out there when the light light is up. I mean, these these birds are going to decoy all, all day long on big water. I think typically that's that's probably the difference. Is you know the birds on the divers tend to, to move around throughout the day on a pretty regular basis. Um, a lot of puddle ducks. You know, it's kind of that first light opportunity or last light of the day, um, where divers tend to work and move um, throughout the day, um, and uh, so that that does provide some longer opportunities within the day. There's days I go out, whatever, sunrise at 6.30 and, and I'll come off the water at 12, 12.30, 12 one o'clock in the afternoon, um, you know, where a lot of guys who maybe are hunting a, hunting a pothole, you know, they've been home for two, three hours at that point in time. Yeah, it, but there is a danger with this big water hunting that does not necessarily exist in a field. In a field. Absolutely, you know, you're, you're in, you're in Green Bay is a big body of water. You know, your water temperatures are cold. So if somebody were to fall overboard or go in, you know, that's immediate risk. You know, is your gear up to the, to the task? Is your motor, you know, fully functional so you don't have motor problems? You're driving your boat around yards and yards of line and, you know, anchor lines and things like that. So there, there is some risks along with it and there's some safety concerns, but you mitigate those, you know, you, you know, you learn through experience and time, you know, how to operate the boat, where not to take the boat, those type of things. So people talk about waterfowl hunting as it's, it's not just a sport or a hobby. I mean, it becomes a lifestyle. It's consuming. I mean, you know, the Fowl Life podcast, people listening to this podcast, the two of us sitting here, I mean, we are obsessed with this. This is not just, Hey, on the weekend, I might, this isn't going to a Packer game. And, and, and watching the game, this is an obsession. It is, it's an absolute obsession. Like I said, I probably a little bit crazy, but I, I honestly say I think about it 365 days of the year. And uh, my wife says October, November, and December, she recognizes that she's not my species of choice. <laughs> and uh so she gives me that opportunity to go out and enjoy what i what i like to do and uh and it is it's a passion obsession i don't know what you want to call it but uh 
it's in it's in my blood and it's been in my blood since I was a kid. My dad took me out the first pothole and I probably missed a wood duck's, you know, a box box of shells to never get a wood duck at that point in time, but somehow it connected with me. Yeah, one of the tougher things about big water hunting is you can't just get the idea like I'm going to go try it. You need somebody, don't you? So what's your advice to somebody who wants to try it? I, I think, you know, find a friend who does it. Um, you know, there, there's guides that do it. So if you want to try to get out and it, because you really need to experience it. You need to get a sense of, is, is that something you want to do on a regular basis? Um, and that's one thing I, I truly enjoy doing. I, 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 every year I take out people who've never done it. And uh, I, it's, I don't even hunt. I don't even get in the boat. I don't, you know, I give, give them that full opportunity to get out there and, and do it and it's it's one it, it, it gives them a taste of it and I I'm sure some have kind of grown into it and, and maybe went off on their own and started to do it like I did um, but if nothing else it gives them an understanding and appreciation for just another type of waterfalling yeah and I think there's definitely uh, there's a point in most hunters lives where taking somebody and watching them get their first kill their first harvest or getting the harvest is actually more satisfying than pulling the trigger yourself yep it, I, I fully agree that's that's probably the last phase of hunting is you know it's not about your own trigger pull it's about conservation and enjoying the experience and and part of that experience is you know maybe introducing someone new to it um, the fun thing is for me in the layout world with uh, a new hunter is you get everything set up and then you're 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 transferring them from the chase boat my my big boat into the layout boat you know and you 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 can tell there's this this concern in their eyes of what are you doing you know because it's small i mean you you're laying basically right at water level and the waves are rolling by and this splash is coming onto the boat and uh as you pull away, you know, they got all their gun, their shells, their radio that you communicate. And, and I always tell them, you know, I'll see you in three, four hours. So I'm going to head back to the landing. <laughs> yes, I've got goosebumps as we're talking about it. No pun intended. <laughs> what do you like to do with the birds uh, as far as eat them? How do you prep them? I do a lot of grilling. Um, I just enjoy them on the grill. Uh, my wife and I both enjoy them that way. So we, we pretty, pretty basic, pretty simple variety of marinades that we throw them in um, and I grill them and you know as you know from from your experience in cooking and providing that you know most times people overcook that you know waterfall and you know then that's a key I'm telling you waterfall does can be served medium rare and when you make it tough and chewy it also tastes different it yep. just tastes tastes nasty don't overcook it don't overcook it and uh, it's in because you know, my, my in-laws come down to visit, and they actually, from time to time, request duck. You know, if you say, oh, what do you guys want to have tonight? Or what do you want to eat for supper? And they're like, do you got any duck? And I'm like, oh, yeah, we can. We got some duck. We can handle that. So, Well, that is awesome. Uh, Todd Schaller, uh, three decades plus as a conservation warden in the state of Wisconsin. And now he's retired. Now you're retired and you get to focus on your passion. And as much of him as was a conservation warden is also a waterfowler and a waterfowl hunter. And he gives it hard on Lake Michigan. And uh, certainly thank you for uh, coming on the podcast today. I know I probably threw some tough questions at you. That's good. I'm good with tough. Yeah, he, he's a tough guy and he's tough to be out there on Green Bay as much as he is. I'll tell you that. But I think I thank you very much for some of the insight today because 
There is so often that apprehension and potential animosity between the hunter and those who are commissioned and take an oath to protect the resource. And I think the more understanding between those two groups and the more working together between those two groups, the more successful hunters will be and the more successful will be at proliferating the species and proliferating new hunters. So thank you for uh, joining us today. Thanks everybody for being with us today on the Fowl Life Podcast. I'm Joel Claybish. We'll see you next time.